In this month in July, we've been studying Romans chapter 6, and this morning we close looking at the final verses, verses 20 through verse 23. If you're using one of the URC Bibles there in the Purack, you could find our passage today on page 943, entitled this sermon series here the last couple weeks, New Life in Christ. Today we're going to consider the new fruit that the believer has. If we were to summarize the entire chapter in simple terms, is this, that for the Christian, because of your relationship to Christ, your relationship to sin has forever changed. Because of your relationship to Christ, there's now a breach between you and the power of sin, and that there is now a breach between you and the service of sin. There's still indwelling sin, and to work through that, you have to go on to Romans, really, chapter 7 and chapter 8. But we close this morning considering some summary thoughts here at the Romans, the end of Romans chapter 6, on how the Christian's relationship to sin has forever changed. Before we read our passage this morning, Let us go to God and ask for his help in prayer. Please join me in prayer again. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we need it. We need it for our spiritual life. We need it for our growth in grace. We need it if we are to bring glory to you, and that is our chief end and our desire, that our lives, our words, our thoughts, our actions, our character would bring you glory. And that we, in walking in fellowship with you, walking in the light, would enjoy you now and forever. So we ask for your Spirit's help that it would come and minister your word to us this morning. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Hear the word of God from the end of Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. Here at the end of Romans 6, we're asked to think again. And maybe we could step back and just make the observation and apply the lesson that one of the things we do see throughout this chapter is that Christian obedience is never intended to be mindless obedience. We're to have thoughtful obedience. Now, you are to believe and obey everything in God's Word, even when you don't understand it. But in your believing and obeying, you are to seek 
to grow in greater understanding. So the charge that we have here in this chapter is not just to conform our behavior, but to be transformed in your thinking. And Paul will say it very clearly at the beginning of Romans chapter 12. Paul gives you a mandate to live by, but that's not all he gives. He gives you truth to shape your mind in order that you might live. So in this chapter, we've been told what to think about our baptism. We've been instructed to consider the consequences of union with Christ. We've been challenged to understand our new relationship to the law of God. We've been very pointedly challenged to consider who are you serving with your life? And all of this thinking is intended to help you understand as a Christian, what is your new relationship to sin? And so here we come to the end, and Paul wants you to think about your past, and he wants you to think about your future in order that you know how to live in the present. So in verses 20 through 21, I want us to see how to think about your past. And then in verses 22 through 23, how to think about your future. We look at our past first. Begins in verse 20. Look back in your Bibles at verse 20 with me. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. This analogy began in verse 15 of the chapter of understanding that everyone is a slave to something, either righteousness or sin. And just before this verse, Paul is pressing upon the believer that you have a new master and you must intentionally seek to serve your new master. So look at the end of verse 19. Present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. And so the beginning of verse 24, he's looking to further ground that admonition. He wants to further encourage us in devotion to the master by offering more grounds to that command in verse 19. So, he concedes, there is freedom for those outside of Christ. But it's not a great freedom, it's a terrible freedom. In a sense, they are free from the demands of righteousness. Now, it's not that those who are outside of Christ will not be held accountable to God's standard of righteousness. Everyone will be judged according to God's standard of righteousness. But understanding that Paul is still working within that analogy of slave and master in the previous verses, his point is that those who are free of righteousness are inevitably slaves of sin. You're either a slave to sin or slave to righteousness. It may be helpful to think about it in this way. Think of a prisoner of war. When a soldier is taken prisoner by the enemy, and they are taken captive, most immediately they are under a different command, if you would. They are no longer under the direct command of their commanding officer. They are now in captivity to the enemy. And so in a sense, for the time being, there's some freedom from their commanding officer, but their freedom is a prison. 
And the truth is that while imprisoned, they will still give an account to their true commanding officer. Jesus Christ is the rightful Lord over every human being. And those who live free of His commands in the service of another commander will give an account to Jesus. And Paul wants to ensure that we don't in any way become deceived into thinking that slavery to sin is preferable to slavery to righteousness. So how does he do that? And in the following verse, in verse 21, Paul wants us to take a trip down memory lane. He wants us to remember what our pre-Christian life was like and what it produced. So look back at verse 21. What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Paul wants you to remember, if you are a Christian, and if you're not a Christian, this is helpful for you to hear, that outside of Christ, every single person is spiritually bankrupt. Here he uses the word fruit. He says, consider your life. Was there any fruit? Now, in some places, the New Testament speaks about producing bad fruit, but that's not the way that the Apostle Paul uses the concept of fruit. He uses the concept in producing good fruit consistently throughout his letters. So in the context of of Paul's letters, fruit is always a, a, a good thing that's produced. And so his point here isn't saying that you've produced bad fruit. His point is that your life produced nothing of value. There was no fruit. No spiritual good came from your life outside of Christ. And so it's your spiritual bankruptcy. Your life under the service of sin produced no fruit, but it produced things that you are now ashamed of. And ultimately, he points out the end of those things, the telos, the goal, where they were leading. They were leading death leading to death by producing death. So let's take a moment and remind ourselves the things that he identifies that our life outside of Christ produces. He does so in the beginning of his letter to the Romans. In Romans 1, verses 29 to 31, this is how your life apart from Christ is described. Filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, Murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Sins of omission and sins of commission, sins of tongue, sins of the mind, sins of the body, Corrupt, totally depraved. This is the things that came from our lives before Christ. We could go to Galatians chapter 5, and there, very explicitly, contrasted to the fruit that the Holy Spirit produces, it says that the flesh produced these things in Galatians 5 19 to 21 sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry sorcery, 
enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and other things like this. So how should you think about the things that your life once produced? Paul's answer is shame. The believer is to remember the shame of his or her past. I want us to think about how shame plays a role in our growing in holiness. Now, to clarify, we experience shame for different reasons and very oftentimes complicated and complex reasons. But if we could do some big bucket categories, there's shame for what you have done and there's shame for what was done to you. Here Paul is not addressing shame for what was done to you. But, if we could take a moment, let me tell you that if you come in to this place this morning burdened and marked and felt covered by the shame of what has been done to you, Jesus is the perfect high priest for you. That he himself suffered abuse from the hands of wicked men, stripped and beaten, in order that he might be a sympathetic high priest for all who would come to him. Here, Paul is addressing shame for what you have done. Remember the shame that came from what you did in the service of your old master. And this serves your progress in serving your new master. See, sometimes Christians talk about their old life in such a way that it kind of sounds like they wish they could go back to it. The good old days, the party life, maybe talking about the, the number of people that they dated, the trouble that they got into, and it's kind of with a, a, a wink and a smirk that you talk about your pre-Christian life. That's not boasting in the grace of God. We are to boast in the grace of God, but that is something different. God forbid if we think fondly on our life back before Christ when we were enslaved to sin. On the other hand, you may try to do whatever it takes just to forget your past. And here Paul says, no, God redeems it in your growth and holiness. And part of that is remembering the shame that come. He doesn't want you to define, define yourself by your past, because to do so would be to define yourself by your sin. He doesn't want you to live under the condemnation that accompanies the shame prior to knowing Christ. No, he wants you to remember it. And we see something of this in his own life, where the Apostle Paul will tell Timothy that he's the chief of sinners. 
Well, a couple things are probably going on there. As Paul is growing in holiness and Christlikeness, he's seeing more and more of his need to crucify, to mortify indwelling sin. But also, he remembers what his life produced. Now he was a terror to the church. And now he supported the murder of Christians before he became one. He's both seeing his need for further growth and holiness. He's also remembering his past and what he was saved from. So when we remember our shame, it does two things. It, first of all, it exalts the grace of God. If we're not careful, we may think at some point that we deserve the grace that we've been shown. After all, we've made so many changes in our lives. There's so many things that are different today than who we were. And that never merits the grace of God. That's the first thing that remembering our shame does. The second thing is that it serves to help us to not return to our old master. There's a proverb and we'll get it out early so it's not too close to lunch to think about it. But the proverb is 26.11 of Proverbs, and the Apostle Peter quotes it in 2 Peter as well. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Remembering our shame keeps us from returning to our vomit. I promise I won't say that word again. But... The tempter never begins with reminding you of the shame that your sin caused. The tempter comes offering the temporary pleasure that comes from sin. So, imagine going to a restaurant that serves the most delicious food and immediately is met with food poisoning every time you have a meal there. Well, returning to the old master is like driving by that restaurant and saying, ah, whew, food poisoning was terrible, but man, while we were sitting there at the table, it tasted wonderful. And that's how the tempter comes. He doesn't want you to remember what accompanied the consequences of your sin in this life. Shame serves a holy purpose in the life of the believer Remember, it came into the world to alert Adam and Eve that they were not right with God. That they had rebelled against God and broken His command. To have shame over sin means that you now properly see sin for what it is. We are to look to the cross and see what our sins deserved. To have absolutely no sense of shame over sin, it is a mark of a life still under the dominion of sin. But remembering who we were prior to our conversion helps us press on in the Christian life. It's how we should think about our past. Now I want us to think about how we are to think about our future in verses 22 through 23. Verse 22, look back there with me. 
But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. You see the contrast. That service to sin, its end and goal is death. Service to righteousness produces fruit and sanctification and its end, eternal life. So here, looking towards the future, the apostle does address our present. And look at what he presumes about the present case for the believer. The fruit you get. Here is an underlying assumption. Christians bear fruit. Good fruit. Because you have been set free from sin, there in the beginning of verse 22, now that you've been set free from sin and become slaves of God, Because you've been set free from sin, your life will produce fruit of that freedom. Now, you could take this diagnostically, meaning examine your life and see if there is fruit. And there is a place for that, and we do see that in the New Testament, but that's really not the thrust of what Paul wants to do here. He's still, in a sense, speaking of the indicative. And that means what is true, what is fact. He's reminding you once again in this chapter of what God has done for you. He wants you to pursue progress in holiness based on what God has done for you. See, the theologians, they, there's two kind of big ways to talk about sanctification. Sanctification means to be holy to be set apart for God. And the two ways that they talk about it is definitive and progressive sanctification. So definitive sanctification is this. It is the once and for all act not repeated. That when you are joined to Christ, His sanctification becomes your sanctification. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says that God has made him to us to be our sanctification. It's a definitive sanctification. And then there's also, we see present in the New Testament, progressive sanctification, which is the process and the transformation and the conforming of a life to the image of Christ. And one of the things that we need to see from Romans chapter 6 is that progress comes from definite sanctification. Progress comes from what is ours in Christ. If we inherited corruption from Adam, we receive holiness from Christ. See, we In the Westminster Standards, when we define sanctification, it's largely in reference to, in the Shorter Catechism, to progressive sanctification and identifies it as a work of free grace. But we got to understand how this is working. We don't work with Christ producing holiness. We receive holiness from Christ and then we put it into practice. And there's a world of difference between the two. 
We are not producing holiness ex nihilo, meaning out of nothing. When we speak of God creating the world, he brought it out of nothing. It is not a cooperation between you and Jesus creating holiness. It's that you receiving holiness from the source. See, the great truth is that believers do not act for life, but we act from life. So therefore, here in verse 22, because you've been set free by your Lord, expect fruit. Expect fruit. Expect there to be progress. That there would be sanctification. That it would lead to eternal life. It would lead to glorification. Now, it does not say the exact quantity or the quality of fruit, but that we are to expect its progress. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I'm not a, I'm not a farmer, but I understand that there are some fruit trees that you shouldn't expect there to be mature fruit early in the life of the tree, that it takes several years. But there is observable progress. It may be slow. It may take years. But eventually, eventually, it produces something that can be enjoyed and that others can benefit from. It's been summed up in some ways of saying, become what you are. But there's a better way of saying it. It's become what you are becoming. Here, because of our union with Christ, he says that we're going to produce fruit. We'll become more and more sanctified. We will enjoy eternal life. And so we are putting into practice becoming what we are becoming. Lastly, the last verse. Look back at verse 23. Many of you know this verse by memory. We close looking at Romans chapter 6 on this wonderful verse, the climactic moment. Here it is. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The apostle shifts his analogy from servant and master, from slave to master, to one of compensation. Here it begins in the verse talking about the wages received. Now it's the image, the original language, it's the, what a general would pay out to his soldiers. This is the final personification of sin here in Romans chapter 6. That sin is a general giving out compensation to those who are serving in its ranks. Sin deserves and receives death. And we see in the scope of Scripture that that death is spiritual, physical, and finally eternal death. But the way that the wages come, doesn't it often come incrementally? It's not all paid at once, but it comes more and more and more death until 
final, eternal, conscious torment away from the blessed presence of God. Now, in shifting the analogy, he offers one more antithesis. He doesn't stay with the compensation analogy when he talks about what we have in Christ. He then says it's a free gift. That the gift of God is eternal life. A free gift. It is meant to draw a stark contrast between what comes to us outside of Christ and what we have received from God. Now, Oftentimes, we we think about this free gift of eternal life as our ticket to heaven. But as we've made our way through Romans 6, haven't we come to see that this free gift of eternal life is something that we, we touch now? That the life of the age to come has, has spilled over into this fallen world. And that eternal life begins to animate the life of the believer, heading towards that goal of never-ending life with the triune God. And so this free gift, we could say, it's, it's our justification. It's our sanctification as well. Sanctification is part of the free gift of grace that we received. But most importantly, notice there, maybe the last phrase, And for years, I I didn't put much thought to this last phrase. You just kind of take it for granted. We emphasize the wages of sin, death, the free gift of God, eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Like if if that was like just a necessary clarification so no one was confused to think we were talking about some other religion, that the free gift of God, and we had to just clarify saying, no, we're talking about the Christian faith here. No, it's more than that. This is where he began the letter, uh, this chapter with. So the chapter begins with, if grace abounds in response to sin, shouldn't we sin to get more grace? And the Apostle Paul says, by no means, you are in Christ. How are those who are in union with Christ live in sin any longer? And so the bookends of the chapter are union with Christ. That the eternal life that we have points us to this great and glorious doctrine. That all of salvation comes under the banner of union with Christ. And so that's why it's not a matter of our sanctification coming from our justification. That's not what, how sanctification works. Both justification and sanctification come to the believer as blessings and benefits of being brought into union with the Savior. It's not just a matter that Jesus purchased our justification and sanctification and gives it to us as part of a, a, a gift. No, the gift is union with Him. And because we're in union with Him, His death has become our death. His life has become our life. And so you cannot separate sanctification and union with Christ. And because 
of our union with Christ, the eternal life, the life of the age to come, empowers the believer to live now. He breaks the power of canceled sin and he sets the prisoner free. This is the one whom you've been united to, dear saint. And though you battle indwelling sin because you are united to Christ, indwelling sin no longer has overpowering sin. And indwelling sin is no longer enslaving sin in your fight and battle with it. A helpful image of union with Christ is the, the way that they would bring the ships to the shore um, in ancient times. They didn't have the same system of docks and ways to port. So they would take the anchor on a chain from a ship and then they would put it in a smaller boat that could land on shore. And that smaller boat was the was the the forerunner boat. And it brought the anchor to where they wanted to leave the ship. And then they would pull the chain closer and closer to where the anchor had been placed. And Christ being like that forerunner, carrying the anchor of our souls all the way to heaven in a union that cannot be broken and then we put it into practice. Connected to him, we pull on the chain and begin to become what we are becoming. See, when we think about growing in holiness, very quickly sometimes we go to thinking about the means by which we, we, we put it into practice. What activities do we engage in? And Paul's not going there. Paul wants us to be sure that before we employ any means, whether it be accountability groups, whether it be reading the Bible, prayer, that you understand that our trust is in the Savior. And that in doing these things and engaging in means of sanctification, of putting aside and putting off and dying to sin, our hope is not in the means, but our hope is in the Savior Himself. Because we are united to Jesus in His God-forsaken death, dear believer, you can forsake death and sin now. And because you are united to Him in His never-ending life, you can walk in newness of life now. All glory be to Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, this is wonderful news that has come to us that Christ is our holiness, and as our master, he is producing what we cannot produce on our own, that we are coming to share in his holiness by the work of free grace in our lives. 
We ask that we would have a hunger for holiness. And that we would look upon the things that once we used to try to satisfy our appetites with, with shame and disgust. Remembering the outcome of those things, pressing on for better things with Christ, things of life eternal. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.